church into this building this morning. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of Cross Point. Glad that you're here. As Jason said, whatever brings you into this place this morning, uh, however far you've come, whether it be from South Georgia, Florida, or you actually live here, um, glad that you're here with us. Hope that um, you're served well um, as we seek to point you to uh, the beauty of the gospel this morning, and I uh, hope that that meets you where you are. Um, if you are new, uh, we're in the heart of a sermon series right now uh, entitled Cross Point Together. It's a vision casting series uh, meant not only to get at the heart of what we're after as a church, uh, but also to help us get an idea of the cultural air that, that many of us in this room breathe and the impact that it has on our lives. We began this series with the following simple yet profound statement. Everyone everywhere is being discipled. Let me say that again. Everyone everywhere is being discipled. The question is not, are you a disciple? Rather, the question is, who or what are you a disciple of? We all live in a particular place at a particular time in human history, and that place and time are not neutral. We live in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known, I would argue. been arguing it for weeks. The perfect cultural cocktail, you might say, of moralism and suburbanism, beckoning us with the same words that Jesus spoke to his disciples Follow me. The voice of moralism calls us to a life of performance in the name of earning God's love and favor, declaring there are good guys and there are bad guys. God loves the good guys, so be a good guy and God will love you. The monster of moralism loves to watch you dance between the two extremes of pride and despair. Pride when you think you're doing well at pleasing God and despair when you feel like you've fallen short. And then there's the cultural giant of suburbanism. Perhaps the, the greatest cultural giant standing in the way of the gospel in our context. I've been sharing this quote from the very beginning of this series. I'll share it again this morning. Jared Wilson, in his book, uh, The Imperfect Disciple, he says this. He says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. Or as my friend Ross Lester said at a church planters gathering I went to a couple months ago, he says, you have to fight hard for genuine community in places that revolve around the cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. You have to preach and believe the scandalous gospel of grace in environments designed around performance and self-help. You have to remind people of God's great mission and their place in it in the midst of routines, school runs, commutes, and survival. Again, perhaps the, the most contested space the world has ever known, the perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. Welcome to Peachtree City. These voices, they call out to us, inviting us to live lives of, of suppression, distraction, isolation, and consumption, and yet Jesus offers us something so much better. Jesus offers us to live, uh, invites us to live lives of celebration, connection, community, and contribution. Uh, over the course of the past two weeks, we've talked about the first of these two gospel rhythms, celebration and connection. Celebration has, has everything to do with the gospel story at large. We have every reason to be the most celebratory people on planet Earth, a rowdy bunch, as I've said in this series. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We've gone from spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity to beloved children of God. It's quite amazing. We're part of a divine drama that involves a God who, who didn't wind up the clock of human history and then check out on his creation. We're not a part of a story where we've evolved from primordial sludge into the glory of man. 
We're, we're not a part of a story where there are competing gods and we don't know which one's good and which one's going to triumph in the end is all powerful, not knowing where the story's going. Rather, we're a part of a story that involves a God who not only creates but makes himself known to his creation. A God who willingly became a character in his very story in order to rescue the ones who rebelled against him. A God who cares, a God who heals, a God who resurrects, a God who believes in happily ever afters. That's the gospel story that you and I are invited to celebrate. But it's not just about the celebration of of the bigger gospel story at large. It's also about connecting your story to the, the bigger gospel story. It's about the gospel in you. That's the connection rhythm. We talked about that last week, uh, how the gospel matters in light of your unique past, how the gospel matters in light of your unique struggles with sin and unbelief, how the gospel matters in light of the unique ways that you battle the attacks of the enemy, how the gospel matters in light of the unique things that you come face to face with in life. And so last week, we spent a good bit of time taking some notes on ourselves, you might say, the gospel fluency version of the Myers-Briggs. And the the hope of last week is that we would all better understand how the gospel speaks into our lives particularly and uniquely so that we might experience more and more of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives in the everyday rhythms of life. And so I shared this quote last week as well. Jeff Vanderstelt in his book, Gospel Fluency, fantastic book, buy it if you haven't. He says this, we all face struggles and battles, sometimes from enemies we can't even see. We hear lies and accusations. We struggle with temptations and we are often deceived. We hear words that were spoken over us when we were younger, echoing in our hearts in ways that don't breathe life to our souls. We look at our present situations and wish they were better. And many of us face uncertain futures that without God cause us to lead lives of anxiety, worry, and fear. We all need help because we can come up with plenty of reasons not to believe, not to hope, not to trust in God's word and work for us. He goes on to say, we need the gospel and we need to become gospel fluent people. We need to know how to believe and speak the truths of the gospel, the good news of God in and into the everyday stuff of life. In other words, we need to know how to address the struggles of life and the everyday activities we engage in with what is true of Jesus, the truths of what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, and as a result, what is true of us as we put our faith in him. The gospel has the power to affect everything in our lives. The the more we grow in understanding our particular need for the gospel, the more we will grow in a deeper love and appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But, But here's the reality. God never intended for us to go after this stuff alone. God never intended for us to to sit in isolation and sort out the reality of how the gospel comes to bear in our lives. God intended for us to work out the implications of the gospel in our lives in the context of a covenant community, a family, an expression of Jesus's bride. John Stott says it this way. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, God's purpose, which was conceived in a past eternity, is being worked out in history and is to be perfected in a future eternity. God's purpose is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. That's where we're going this morning. Thus far, we've talked about the gospel story, celebration. We've talked about the gospel in you connection. 
And this morning now, we're going to talk about the gospel with us community. And then next week, we'll close out this series talking about the gospel to others, this rhythm of contribution in the life of the Christian. And so it's with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we've been the last couple weeks. That's where we'll continue to go for the remainder of this series. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab uh, one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation this may be difficult to understand, Please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get to work. God, first of all, I want to pray for my friends in the southern part of this state, my friends in Florida, those who are even in our midst representing those areas that call those places home. God, in the story of creation, you told the waves where to stop. Jesus, as you sat with your disciples in a boat, you commanded the winds and the waves to obey you, and they had no choice but to listen. You're sovereign over all things. And so we pray that, that you would move this storm away from the coastline, that you would cause it to die in the gulf. But I also pray this morning that should you choose not to do that, that we remember and trust and believe that you are good, sovereign, and wise. God, help our hearts. This morning, as we open your word together, I pray that we would be compelled by this beautiful picture of the covenant community of God that you redeem people into. I pray that we would experience that in the days to come. I pray that we would all move toward the one another life even more so with greater intentionality as a result of our time together. And that in doing so, that you would get all the glory and that we would get all the joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've been walking through Acts chapter 2 for several weeks now. And it's a fascinating chapter of the Bible. It tells of the day of Pentecost. Many of you know that. A day on which the Holy Spirit came in power, unifying God's people to declare his mighty works. It's a day on which Peter preached a sermon declaring the supremacy of Jesus Christ and 3,000 people were saved. That's crazy, right? Going back to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, Peter's word, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people cut to the heart by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3,000 new converts. And now Luke's going to give us a picture of this new family of believers living in light of the gospel. Jesus didn't spill his blood to redeem us into isolation, but rather into a family. Acts chapter 2 gives us a picture of the church as a family, a covenant community. And so here's what I want to do. I, I'm going to read the passage in its fullness from start to finish, verses 42 through 47. This is the same passage we're going to come back ne uh, to next week as we talk about the gospel rhythm of contribution. And so the plan is, is to kind of parse out uh, the things having to do with community this morning and then contribution next week, looking at the same passage of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, uh, the two are very difficult to untangle from one another. A gospel community always includes the rhythm of contribution. So you'll probably notice some bleeding over into next week, even this morning. I'm not going to walk us verse by verse through this passage per se. Rather, I'm just going to point out some things that I hope will, will spur us toward the one another life with gospel intentionality. Beginning in verse 42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a, what a beautiful picture of the church as a covenant community. Right? Many of us go to this passage as the ideal of what the church can and should be. The first thing to notice uh, is that the church is a community devoted to feasting on the word of God. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You can build a community of people based on devotion to a number of things, right? Shared interests, common hobbies, similar life experiences, same stage of life. A common sports team. I mean, there are a number of things that you can build a community around. The church is a community of people brought together in devotion to the teachings of Scripture, which is inextricably intertwined with the devotion to the hero of Scripture, Jesus Christ himself. So we're talking about a, a deep love and loyalty to the Bible and its hero, Jesus. That's what we're seeking to be about as a church. That's the kind of community that we're seeking to build here as Cross Point Peachtree City. A community growing in love for and loyalty to the scriptures. And a community growing in love for and loyalty to the hero of the scriptures. Second, the church is a community devoted to linking arms with one another for a common cause. Again, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That, that word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that, that presents us with a little bit of a challenge. Um, the word fellowship means something very different today than it meant back in the days of the early church. You, you probably, my guess would be you don't throw around the word fellowship with your non-Christian friends. You think it would probably weird them out, right? It's, it's a word that has come to mean for us friendship among believers, but that's not what it meant in the days of the early church. In those days, it was more about the linking of arms for, for a common cause, which of course establishes friendship. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And for the Christian, that shared vision is the advancing of the gospel, both in the lives of Christians and non-Christians. Going back to everything we talked about last week, the gospel in me must be worked out in the context of the gospel with others. Here's one reason that I, that I know that's true. There are at least 37 one another statements in the New Testament alone. Let me just run you through these very quickly. Romans 12, 5, Paul says, We are members one of another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Again, Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 13.8, love one another. Romans 14.19, edifying one another. Romans 15.7, welcome one another. Romans 15.14, instruct one another. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the life verse of every boy in a youth group. 1 Corinthians 1.10, agree with one another. 1 Corinthians 11.33, wait for one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25, have the same care for one another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to and forgiving of one another. Ephesians 5.19, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Philippians 2.3, esteem one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with and forgive one another. Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. 
Hebrews 10.24, stir up one another to love and good works. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. Again, James 5.16, pray for one another. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. 1 John 1.7, fellowship with one another. And then you have the negative one another teachings. Romans 1.27, not lusting for one another. Romans 14.13, not passing judgment on one another. 1 Corinthians 7.5, not depriving one another. Galatians 5.15, not biting, devouring, destroying one another. Galatians 5.26, not envying one another. Galatians 5.26 also says not provoking one another. Colossians 3.9, not lying to one another. James 4.11, not speaking evil against one another. James 5.9, not grumbling against one another. And Titus 3.3, not hating one another. That's a lot of one another's, right? Here's the thing that that cannot and, and must not go unnoticed here. These are commands. These are imperatives, 37 of them, and there are probably more. This is a working list in progress. When we live our lives in a way that declares the church as a family to be negotiable, when we live our lives justifying all the reasons that the one another life won't work for us, whether we realize it or not, we're, de- we're declaring a hearty no thank you to at least 37 of God's commands. We cannot live in obedience to God in isolation. Unless you're, unless you're exiled to the island of Patmos or you're the last remaining contestant on Survivor, like the, the one another life is yours to embrace under the banner of the gospel as the redeemed of Jesus Christ. And going back to last week, one of the, one of the most beautiful things about the one another life is that it helps us to work out the gospel in ourselves, in his kindness I mean, this is true for my life. God uses other people to show me my blind spots. He does it all the time. God uses other people to help me see my unique need to believe and apply the truths of the gospel to my life. God uses others to preach the gospel to me when I'm too debilitated to preach the gospel to myself. And God uses me in similar ways in the lives of other people in our church family. And that takes us back to the celebration rhythm two weeks ago. The gospel in me, as that gets worked out, that same community gets to celebrate the work of the gospel in my life. The one another life is God's grace to us. To be part of a covenant community is a gift from the Lord. Moving on, not only is the church a community devoted to feasting on the word of God, not only is the church a community devoted to linking arms with one another for the sake of the gospel, the church is also a community devoted to breaking bread with one another. Verse 42 says it this way, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Verse 47, in breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Some, some scholars believe this to be referring to the Lord's Supper. Others believe it to be referring to the sharing of meals with one another. I'm not sure you have to choose. The church as a family implies both, right? We partake of the Lord's Supper as a covenant community every time we gather in this place, and we share our kitchen and dining room tables with one another because that's what families do. My, my hope for this church is that we would err on the side of having people into our homes too much rather than too little. The, the church is also a community devoted to prayer. Again, verse 42, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I don't have time to unpack the theology of prayer this morning. We could spend all morning talking about the beauty and significance of bringing words of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication to the Lord. But for the sake of where we're going this morning, suffice it to say that the beauty of being redeemed into a family is that we get to pray with and for one another. It's a beautiful thing to know that that there are brothers and sisters lifting me up to the Lord at any given moment. I hope you're encouraged to know that I lift you up to the Lord often. And again, going back to last week, we we can do that with much more intentionality as we grow in understanding our own stories and the stories of others. The more we hide our true selves from other people, the more we rob ourselves of the prayers of others on our behalf. The church is also a community empowered by the Spirit and awestruck when he moves. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Going back to, to a couple weeks ago, regardless of where, where you land on the gifts of the Spirit, um, it's true that the Spirit of God is still in the business of unifying and empowering God's people to declare his mighty works. That one's not up for debate. The Spirit of God is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The Spirit of God is mightier than the Spirit in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. And we should expect the Spirit to move and stand in awe when the Spirit moves. May our functional trinity never be Father, Son, and Holy Bible. I love the Bible, by the way. You should know that if you've been around long enough. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we'd all be dead in our trespasses. We'd be hopeless. Let's keep going. A couple more things to notice with respect to this gospel rhythm of community. The church is also a community devoted to being present with one another. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46 puts it this way. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. There's both a, a gathered and a scattered presence, both in the temple and in homes, both in this makeshift auditorium and as we leave this place, together, Together, together. Finally, the church is a community devoted to praise. Verse 46, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Again, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. We have every reason to be the most celebratory people on the planet. We should be a rowdy bunch, the church. We've been redeemed out of darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. We're part of a story that involves a God who loves us so much that he entered into that very story to rescue us at great cost to himself. There's much to celebrate as God's redeemed. Now, we could spend the rest of the day, we could skip lunch, and we could just talk through all of the 37 one another statements and just add layer upon layer of beauty and richness to this idea of the church as a covenant community. But for the sake of getting you out for lunch so that you actually can eat today, let let me stop here and let me just address a couple of things. Very briefly, um, as I've done the past couple weeks, uh, I want to I address our strategy for, for gospel transformation as a church, the tracks that we're looking to put on the ground here to see the gospel move and work in our lives and shape us. Um, as you'll notice immediately, as you look up on that screen, a couple of things. One, we're not the over-programmed church. Uh, we're not looking to do a thousand things. We just want to do a few things and do them with excellence. The other thing that you'll probably notice is that Every one of the three environments that we're calling people to be a part of is an embracing of the one another life. Not one of these three environments is a call to isolation. Each of these three environments presents us with opportunities to live out the one another life in very unique ways. Um, If if you're new here, um, let me just briefly explain what we're going after here. 
Uh, you, you see up at the top of the screen, Sunday gatherings. That's what you're a part of right now. This is a unique gathering of God's people. This is, this is the only atmosphere where the proclamation of God's word happens through the preaching of the scriptures. This is where we receive the elements uh, in partaking of communion together. This is where baptisms happen. This is where we come together collectively to sing the praises of our great God and Savior. This is where the giving of tithes and offerings happens. This is where we strategically seek to point kids to Jesus in a very intentional, gospel-centered way. But, but there's some things that can't happen in here. It, we, we can't have a dialogue. That would be socially awkward, right? If you started talking back right now, everybody knows kind of the rules of the church gathered. We don't do that. That would be weird. And so in order for us to process everything that we're looking at in light of the scriptures, in light of the gospel, we must scatter and get smaller. And so we attempt to do that by dividing up in homes throughout the week where we gather around the passage of scripture that we happen to be in as a church at the time and talk about the implications of the gospel in our lives with one another. It's where we grow in biblical literacy that's shared. It's where we grow in gospel fluency that's shared. I would argue it's where you experience uh, the, the truest picture of the church as a family. Um, it, it's just small enough that you can't be a wallflower like you can in this room, but it's just big enough that you're gonna have to deal with some challenges like you do with your family around the holidays, right? Every community group has a crazy uncle. I'm mine. I've owned it. Like, it just is what it is. Like, your community group exists for your sanctification just as much as anything else. And you're actually probably sanctifying other people through your quirks at the same time. It's where diversity and wisdom happens as people who are in different places in their journey with Jesus come together and engage the things of God together. And yet, in that context of a community group, we still can't get after everything. If you gather for two hours a week in a home around a passage of scripture with a dozen people, you're barely going to scratch the surface of anyone's story at the end of the day. But it does set us up to then get even smaller as we, as we leave those homes throughout the week and engage with a few people in this church with gospel intentionality. That's what we're after. And, and it's not just an equipping thing. It's not just about studying the scriptures together, but it's about warring alongside one another to believe the gospel in the midst of the things that come our way, in the midst of indwelling sin, in the midst of circumstances of life, in the midst of the unique form-fitted attacks of the enemy. We, we war in the trenches alongside one another. That's what a gospel alliance is. Those are the three things that we're looking to go after as a church. And as it pertains to this idea of, of community, this idea of the church as a family, you can think of it this way. Um, there's, there's a unique experience of, experiencing a family that happens in a multitude of environments, right? It, many of you know this. You grew up as a kid. You went to family reunions and weddings and funerals, and, and it was the masses coming together. Um, but, but you also know what it's like to surround the Thanksgiving table, to surround the Christmas tree uh, with, your, with the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, the cousins, the grandkids, the kids. But we also know what it's like to, to get even smaller and to have those moments with family growing up. I remember for me as a kid going and throwing the football with my cousins uh, whenever we would come together, just two or three of us out in the yard, and there were some sweet things that happened in those moments as we got really small. Here, here's another way to think of it. That, that explains it from the, from the vantage point of actually sharing a bloodline with someone. But, but let me come at it from a different angle because, again, I said this before, you can build community uh, without a shared bloodline. You can build community ar around some other common bond other than the fact that you share DNA. Right? I saw it last night. I'm a Georgia fan. 
I'll admit it. I know this is a mixed crowd. Uh, went to my first game when I was eight years old. Still have the scorecard. It's dingy and yellow. It looks awesome. It's going to be framed, and it's going to be in my office very soon whenever we get done uh, with our renovations. Last night, this is what I saw. Okay, if Georgia against Notre Dame in South Bend. I'm watching the television. I've never seen such a sea of red in someone else's stadium as I saw last night as people came together in what I would call their Sunday gathering to declare glory, glory to old Georgia. And then they exited that stadium and they scattered into community groups, restaurants and bars throughout the city. And they gathered around the table and again, they declared glory, glory to old Georgia in a way that they were actually able to dialogue with one another about that experience. And then they got even smaller as they shared cabs, maybe hotel rooms, maybe a seat by one another on a plane this morning. And they declared glory, glory to old Georgia in an even more form-fitted way. We have something so much bigger to declare than glory, glory to old Georgia. We, we get to declare glory, glory to the Father who planned my redemption. Glory, glory to the Son who accomplished my redemption. Glory, glory to the Spirit who applied my redemption and continues to apply my redemption to my heart. That's the song of the church. And so we come together in this makeshift stadium every week and we declare glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we scatter in homes and we declare glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we get even smaller in one another's lives and we declare glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're after as a church. And listen, I understand that it's a big ask for some of you who come from a broken home. Maybe college football isn't your thing. That, even, even that analogy just did that. Not everyone in this room has fond memories of family reunions or Thanksgiving dinners. I get it. I've said it a hundred times, if not more. My dad checked out when I was a kid. I grew up in a, a single-parent home. I understand that. But, but that doesn't mean that God can't redeem our understanding of and experience of what it means to be a family. God loves to heal things which are broken. God loves to redeem that which is broken. That's God's bread and butter. You and I were created for the one another life. Just, just think about it. God himself is a community, and you and I are made in his image. There is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God has always existed as a perfect community, perfect intra-Trinitarian love since before the foundations of the world. And you and I are image bearers of that God. We were designed to mirror God's uh, invisible attributes to the world. Because God himself is a community, we were designed to mirror him as a community, a community of both unified and diverse image bearers. Unified because there's one God, diverse because that God exists in three distinct persons. We were designed for community. That's why we long for relationships with other people. That's why we long for communication. That's why there are more than 1.2 billion Facebook users today. To a degree, we want to know and be known by people. Why? Because we're image bearers. Plain and simple. But, but here's the frustrating thing about community. If you're honest, you want it and you don't want it at the same time. We long for relationships with other people and yet we run in the opposite direction at times. We long to know people and be known by people, yet that very thought terrifies us at the same time. We're image bearers of a Trinitarian God and yet we live in the contested space of a fallen world. Let, let me come back to, to that idea of the contested space for just a second. Let me, let me unpack for a moment. If you are a resident of Peachtree City or the surrounding area, 
Uh, and maybe your context, if you, if you are an evacuee and you're here with us this morning, maybe your context is similar. Maybe there are some takeaways here. Let, let me unpack what we're up against in this moralistic suburban context. Moralism is an enemy of the rhythm of community because it calls us to a life of presenting the best version of ourselves. It all goes back to what happened in a garden so very long ago. Prior to their sin, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. No barriers to intimacy existed. Yet in the wake of their sin and shame, they covered themselves. The, the fig leaves in Genesis 3, we could do a whole sermon on that. There are a number of things that, that those fig leaves symbolize. But one of those things uh, is the barrier to intimacy that sin creates between image bearers. And tragically, what happened in Genesis 3 was just the beginning of the story of fallen man. That story continues on. You and I, we're a part of that story. You and I, like our first parents in the garden, we were designed to mirror God as a community. Yet tragically, oftentimes we run from community. We're, we're afraid to truly be known. We wear masks that have to be removed in order to, to get to the real version of each of us. We display the Photoshop version of ourselves via social media. Isn't that strange? It's a declaration that on the one hand, we can't stand the thought of not being known at all. But on the other hand, we're not comfortable with people knowing the not-so-Photoshop version of us. The competing voice of moralism tells us it's all about performance. We must perform a certain way around other people, even those in our covenant community, which is why you can be a part of a community group and still be living a life of isolation. Only willing to, to go so far in being known. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, it, he says it this way in his book, Life Together. He says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The, the voice of moralism calls us to put the best version of ourselves before one another, to hide behind the fig leaves of our own self-wrought righteousness, to hide behind the fig leaves of, of created forms of identity that aren't rooted in Jesus. Only when we live in response to the scandalous grace of God are we free to put the fig leaves down, to declare that we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. Only the gospel... Only the gospel can empower a person to put their guard down, to know others and be known by others, to know and experience the fullness and beauty of the church as a family. What about that other competing voice that we've been talking about for weeks now, the voice of suburbanism? What, what, what do we say about that? There, I mean, there are a number of angles that you could go out with respect to the suburban piece of it. You could probably do a sermon in and of itself just on uh, the, the dangers of isolation in a suburban context. And I don't know, maybe I'll write that article and attempt to submit it to the Gospel Coalition and see if they give me any sort of look. But, but, but think about some of these things. For one, the suburbs can oftentimes create a form of pseudo-community. We're talking about a world in which you can wave to your neighbors as you come home from your most recent outing and then pull into your garage and live in isolation until the next time you leave your house. Is that not bizarre? It's bizarre. Albert Sue, in his book, The Suburban Christian, he says it this way. He says, 
One of the biggest critiques of modern suburbia is the problem of suburban isolationism. While we may have a facade of community and neighborhood, we actually have clusters of autonomous individuals and atomized family units with no historic or natural connections to their neighbors. I think part of it comes back to what Ross Lester mentioned uh, that I shared with you earlier, this, this cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. This, this declaration, I've got my spouse and kids, so I've got all the community I could ever need or want. To be crystal clear, a spouse is a gracious gift from God. I love mine. Kids are a gracious gift from God. I love my kids. But the church is also a gracious gift from God. Another, another challenge associated with living in the suburbs, very similar to moralism, suburbanism is about keeping up appearances. We're, we're talking about the land of well-manicured lawns and pressure-washed driveways. Meanwhile, behind many of those walls is brokenness, deeply rooted brokenness. And oftentimes, no one's invited into that brokenness, including ours, if we're honest. As long as we're committed to, to keeping up appearances, we, we will never know the joy of true community. You could say it this way, the suburbs are socially antisocial. James Howard Kunstler, in his work, Home from Nowhere, he says it this way. He says, the idea of a modest dwelling, all our own, isolated from the problems of other people, has been our reigning metaphor of the good life for a long time. It must now be seen for what it really is, an antisocial view of human existence. I mean, the, the cry of suburbia can easily become, I won't bother you with my problems if you don't bother me with yours. Right? We're, we're afraid to reach out, to ask for help. It makes us look like we're not self-sufficient, like we don't have our act together. And thus we remain isolated, afraid to enter into the brokenness of others and afraid to invite others into our brokenness. Here's another challenge in a suburban context. Everyone's busy. Commutes, soccer practices, Grocery store runs, extended work hours, and on and on and on and on we could go. In the busyness of life, the covenant community gets treated like a, like a ball to juggle or like a slice of a piece of pie, isolated from, from everything else. Let, let me show you two contrasting graphics. These are robbed from uh, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester, uh, two, uh, two guys who have been an integral part of our church planting network from the very beginning. This is one way to think about the church. As I just mentioned, it's one thing to be juggled amidst a bunch of, of other things. And so whenever life gets busy, a ball must be dropped. And oftentimes that ball is the church. But here's a very different way to think about the church. And I think this is more in line with what you see in Acts chapter 2. The church is a covenant community of people who have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who come under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, coming alongside the spirit of God and the family of God helps to inform all areas of our lives. Let me give you an example. If you're a person who is currently trusting in career for your identity, that's a gospel issue. And to think that that does not impact your marriage or your relationship with your children is folly. Like this idea that you can separate as slices of pie all these compartments of your life, it just doesn't work. We want to do that because it's less messy. We feel like we have some semblance of control by, by slicing out our life into these various categories. But that's not how 
life works. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel is meant to inform every sphere of life, every facet of life. The church is a gift to, to come alongside and help us process how the gospel works in our life so that we're not doing that alone. And so this is what I would hope. I hope for my own life that taking the word of God, the gospel of God, with the spirit of God indwelling me and the family of God surrounding me, that, that I would leverage those gifts of God's grace to think about my relationship with my friends, my hobbies, my relationship with my family, my, my vocation, uh, uh, educational pursuits, and, and this, that, and the other. Like It, it informs everything in my life when I'm, when I'm walking in tune with the way God has designed uh, me, to, me to walk as a Christian. The, the competing voices of, of moralism and suburbanism invite us to embrace something very different than what you see in Acts chapter 2, a life of isolation, a life of pseudo-community at best. God never intended us to sit in isolation and sort out the reality of how the gospel comes to bear in our lives. He intended us to work that out in the context of a covenant community. Again, coming back to uh, Jeff Vanderstelt and his gospel fluency, he says it this way. He says, language fluency requires immersion into a community of people who speak the language constantly. Gospel fluency requires immersion into a community of people so saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they just can't stop speaking the truths of Jesus wherever they go and in whatever situations they find themselves. And so I would say it this way as we close out this morning. You are a tangible expression of God's grace to other people. If you're a part of Cross Point Peachtree City to other people in this church family, you're a tangible expression of God's grace. And others are a tangible expression of God's grace to you. And as we move toward one another, we become tangible expressions of God's grace to people who don't yet know, love, and follow Jesus. We'll get there next week, but gospel-centered, gospel-saturated community is strange and compelling to people looking in on, on Christianity. You could say it this way, the greatest apologetic of the gospel is a community of people who believe it and live by it.